Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Uh, Welcome to Oak City Church. Thanks for tuning in with us. This morning, you know, um, everywhere, everywhere you go now, everyone you run into, uh, and a lot of times you're running into people you haven't run into for a few weeks or even texting with people you haven't texted for a few months. Um, you're, you're having people, you're just asking them like, how, you know, how are you in the midst of all this? Like, how are you specifically doing? And the answer you get to that question is all over the map. You know, and everybody's doing differently and yet everybody's doing differently in the same ways. And so what I want to do this morning is go through some of the common responses of just how people are processing what we're going through right now. And I'm going to speak to one of them specifically this morning and probably going to speak to another one next week. But so here, here's the range of things that I get. I'm going to start with the one that I get the least, but is the most serious and it's grief, like just grief over the present and what we're going through. And, and we're all grieving in some way because we're grieving a new normal and there's change and loss and all that. But grief, um, in like real intense grief in terms of, of physical loss in terms of death of somebody close to you, a financial loss, the loss of a job, that type of grief is one of the ways that people are experiencing this coronavirus uh, crisis. Thankfully, it's the one that's the the least that I run into. And, and then I think locally, we haven't had it like they've had it in different places in our country and our world. And I'm actually kind of importing that type of experience by making sure I'm in tune with what's going on in other places. I listened to a podcast last week of a woman who was a nurse uh, in Washington, D.C., but felt like God wanted her to go to New York um, and to work there. And so she's working in an ICU in a hospital in Queens where everyone is a coronavirus patient. Um, They're all on ventilators. She said 95% of the people on her unit are dying and they're dying alone. And it's, it's just extreme. She said she goes back to her hotel room at night and she doesn't turn on the TV. She doesn't, you know, go out with friends. She doesn't even call her friends or family. She just sits there and prays and decompresses of all the things that she's experienced. And that is some of the, the way that people are experiencing um, this. And that's the range of it. Now that, uh, the second one that I'm going to mention is a struggle to be productive. And so, and these things are really emotionally and in every way diametrically opposed to each other, but that's how we experience it of like one minute you can be experiencing or talking to someone who's going through this and the next minute it's this. And so for a lot of people, that's what it is. Like, it's just a struggle to figure out, you know, what to do with this. Um, we've been doing these getting to know you uh, videos as a church, and hopefully you've been watching those. And the other day it was Rich and Gina Camacho. And one of the questions, I guess, was why did it take you a week and a half to get this video together? And he's like, because you're like, even though you feel like you should be more productive, you're not. And he said the most productive thing they've done is watch all of the Marvel movies in order. And that is kind of productive. I mean, like, good job, you know? And I'm down with the cinnamon toast crunch too. And that's how a lot of us are, is just figuring out how do we, how do we make it through this? My daughter, um, a few weeks ago, Bobby Joe took uh, Abigail for just in the car and an errand that Bobby Joe had to run, which was an essential critical errand that she had to run. And so Abigail got back and she said, I now understand why the dog always wants to jump in the car and go for a ride because she hadn't been out of the house for three weeks. And she said, I thought about 
uh, rolling the window down and sticking my head out. And it, that, like, that's what it is for um, a, lot of, a lot of folks. People are trying to figure out how to work at home, and there's children all over the place. And what do we do with that? And some people are more productive, and some people are less productive. Uh, someone sent me a, um, a thing from a, a news show in Cleveland, a morning show, where they have a segment Every morning they have a segment, what day is it? And they flip to this guy and he's like, it's Tuesday? Uh, and because that's just where we live. A friend of mine sent me this. It's a lament for Blur's Day. A lament for Blur's Day. Lord, we confess that we don't know what day it is. Today we awoke, grabbed the sweatpants crumpled on the floor by our bed and pulled them on. We confess that these are the same sweatpants that adorned our loins yesterday and the day before and before and before. And yet they remain unwashed like our body. We awoke, pulled on our sweatpants, and in our arrogance joined a Zoom call with dirty body and unwashed sweats. We joined that call, and yet we are not ashamed. We confess that while our body remains filthy and unwashed, we take pride that we are not like the others of our household whose bodies have remained unwashed for even more blurs days than our own. We confess that last blurs day we joined a Zoom call without our sweatpants, with no pants at all, and yet we are not ashamed. We confess that our caloric intake has increased not sevenfold, but nigh unto seventy times seven, and yet we are not satisfied. We confess that we have finished Netflix, we have finished Hulu, and Amazon Prime, even YouTube, and yet we continue to stare bleary-eyed at our screens, unsatisfied. We drift unmoored from all the liturgies that filled our days to overflowing before Blur's Day came, from sports to vacations, happy hours and friendly gatherings, extracurriculars and Netflix binges, the very things we measured our meaning by are gone, and we drift listlessly from Blur's Day to Blur's Day. All we have is you, Lord. We have all of you, and yet we confess that we are not satisfied." And so that, then that rained, and that's true, and that's funny, but then it ranges into the serious of like, you know, and this may be what I talk about next day, how we're not satisfied. And then that ranges into the dangerous, where everybody's addicted to something, something, and, and our addictions come out during this time. You know, they've, they've declared that the ABC stores are essential, and the ABC stores are doing three times the business that they do in normal circumstances. And so it becomes dangerous. Someone sent me an article this week, and part of it was that, um, pornography sites are offering free memberships during this time. And it just made me want to punch a wall and go out and punch a person, uh, because it, it just drives me crazy. Uh, and so, and so it can be a dangerous time. So productivity is a struggle. A third one, anxiety and tension over the future. You hear that from people. And so we don't know how long this is going to last. And we have these reopen protests and you can see both sides of it. And you're not sure what to think about that, but you can get indignant on whatever side you're on. You can get, um, right righteously angry about it. We don't know what the long-term impact of our kids being home from school and now that's canceled. And, and you know, those of you that are homeschoolers, like, you know what you're doing, but the rest of us don't. We're not convinced that the school system knows what they're doing either. So we don't know what that looks like. We don't know what the long-term impact on the economy is. We don't know um, if this thing is going to come back next fall and next winter and come back worse. We don't know if there's going to be football. Is there going to be football? We don't know why the Packers traded up to draft a quarterback in the first round. We got to figure these things out. Uh, we as a church, we're starting to consider what it looks like 
to, to reopen, you know, and we don't have a date in mind because who knows what the date is, but we've discerned that it's going to be, it's going to be slow because some of you, if I told you, Hey, come on right now, we can have a few more. We need, we got a few more people before we get to 10, you would jump in your car and you'd come down here just to be around people. And others of you, we're not going to see you until there's a vaccine and we know it. And so like, there's just a range of this and, um, that, that tension and that uncertainty is part of what we experience for some of you. It's guilt because we're quietly enjoying this time and we don't really want it to end. (laughs) And so I was talking to a woman woman this week and her business has been affected by this. And, but she was saying, you know what? I do kind of enjoy it. And, and I am going to feel a little bit bad when it, when it ends. And I realized that's me. Like there's part of me that's been pushing that down. Um, because my work is affected, but not greatly. I'm still doing my work in some ways. You guys are more accessible. And so I spend a lot of time on the phone with folks and I, and I can get things done and uh, when I come to the building to do work, I am more socially distanced than I am when I'm at home because there's nobody here. Uh, and so it, I'm affected, but, but I'll tell you, like, I love having dinner with my family every single night. I love not running to a million different activities. I'm trying to figure out how to break it to my kids, but they're not playing sports when we get back from this because I just like them and I like having them around. We've been playing that basketball game knockout in our driveway every, every night after dinner and it's great. And I'm going to miss it, uh, when it's done, but I feel, I realize I do, I feel guilty about that when people are going through horrible things because of this and I'm kind of enjoying it. And that's hard, you know, now here's a last one and it's the exposure of unresolved tension or conflict that busyness, not business, but busyness can bury. And so there are, there are certain things in our life and our relationships that they will stay underneath the surface. As long as our routine, we're moving fast enough, or we're busy enough that we can keep those things down. But when you change your routine or you're just in a different proximity with those relationships and those things are trying to come up from underneath the surface and be a part of your life and you're like, get back down there. I don't want to deal with you. And I've seen that in, in a number of situations and a number of families uh, where now like it's there and you're trying to figure out how to deal with it because there's something there that's got to be, uh, dealt with. And, and that's going to happen in part because of the proximity with our family and our family knows our sin better than anybody knows our sin. And, and so it's going to come out more and it's going to come out. Even just the change in the routines is going to come out differently. And in some situations I've heard people have you know, over the last month or so, they've worked through some things and they've um, gotten to, you know, a renewed intimacy in their relationship because of it. But some of us are struggling with that. And so that's what I want to speak into uh, this morning. I'm going to talk about conflict and I've got a passage it's out of Galatians and it's a passage that I read, I don't know, two, three, four months ago. And sometimes I'll just read a passage in the morning and God will really like impress it on me. Um, and I'll see it in a new way. And then I'll start a document, put it in there, make some notes, you know, put it in a file and stuff it away. And this is one of those that jumped out at me a few months ago about conflict. So let me read this passage. It's out of Galatians. And then I've got a bit of explaining to do about it. And then I'm going to talk about how it relates to what we're going through right now. So this is Galatians 2 verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he, Cephas, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
So let me explain a few things. Um, we've got Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Uh, this is the guy that followed Jesus around. He was his, his A1 disciple. He's the head of the church. He's the guy that denied Jesus, and then Jesus restored to ministry. So that's Cephas. That's Peter. Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, and Paul is the guy that uh, um, Jesus came to on the road to Damascus and said, why are you persecuting me and the blinded by the light? And these are the two, like, the biggest guys in the early church. And Peter is the one that has the ministry uh, to the Jewish people, and Paul is the one that has the ministry to the Gentile people. They're, but they're both huge figures in the early church. Now, Jews and Gentiles, let me explain that because it's all a part of this passage. But this is one of the big, the biggest debates in the early church. Uh, the, the, the early church started, it out, came out of the Jewish religion. Everybody was Jewish. And so Jesus was Jewish. God used that to facilitate everything coming out of it, but it was meant to bless the entire world, going back to the promise to Abraham. So you've got Jews, and everybody that's not Jewish is a Gentile. Um, and, the, and the Jewish people over hundreds, thousands of years had developed, they were pretty insular. Uh, and it's because God had set them apart, and they knew that. Um, it's because they'd been persecuted, and so that will happen. And so uh, they had a, really a racism towards anybody that wasn't Jewish. I mean, it was really intense. You can find stuff where they had sayings like, don't help a Gentile woman in childbirth because you don't want to bring another one of them into the world. They wouldn't, they wouldn't share eating utensils. They, you know, I mean, it's just really intense type stuff. And so in the early church, uh, God wanted the gospel to go beyond the Jewish folks to the Gentiles, and it took some convincing. And ironically, given this passage, Peter is the one that he convinced. He gave Peter this vision where these um, a sheet came down in the vision, and all these animals that God had declared unclean in the Old Testament, he said, what I've made clean, you don't consider unclean. And at first, Peter thought it was a test. He's like, Lord, I'm never going to eat that. But then the vision happened three times, and Peter realized, whoa, God is making the gospel go to the whole world world to the Gentiles. And it was this just revolutionary landmark thing um, in the early church. And so that debate comes up here because Peter comes to Paul and their church in Antioch. And Antioch is outside of Israel. Um, it's in Syria. And they had this diverse church going on in Antioch. And they had Jewish people and they had Gentile people. And it was really the first church like that. And Peter comes up. And at first, He's cool. He's hanging out with everybody. He's eating with the Gentile folks. And the way that that's written, he's like on a regular basis eating with the Gentile folks, which is totally what you would expect given what God had showed him. But then after some guys come from Jerusalem and it says they're a, a part of the circumcision party. I'm going to tell you the circumcision party was no party at all on any level. And that's funny. Okay. That's funny. I'm bringing this guy back because, oh, there we go. Because... Uh, I, I'm just, I said this last week, like I'm over talking to a camera and I need you guys to understand this. I need a little bit, like, I need you to text me sometimes. I need you to tell me if something's funny, Dan, I need an amen last week. I'm up here and, and this is how this works. Like Jake, it was Jake and Danielle last week, Jake broke a string. So he, they got off stage. He went out in the lobby and had to fix a string. Um, last week was John Enzor is in the sound booth and, and Daniel's behind the computer and I can't even see him. And poor Danielle was the only person that was in here like live human talking to me. And after about 10 minutes, she just stood up and walked out and I was like, that's it. I'm done. Like we're done with this stuff, you know, and poor Danielle could have been having a heart attack and I would have been like, stay right there, you know? So I just need a little bit. I just need a little bit of something. You guys right now, you're like, honey, come back in the room. Jeff's losing it right here on the internet. Okay. I just need you to understand a little bit what's going on. So what was I talking about? 
You don't even know the circumcision party, the circumcision party conflict, right? Um, the, uh, and so the circumcision party is a group of guys, uh, in the church in Jerusalem that they just are not dealing well with the fact that the gospel is going to the Gentiles and they still want the non-Jewish people to conform to Jewish rituals like circumcision. It was the big debate in the early church. So these guys come to Antioch and Peter like sees them and he's like, I can't eat with these Gentile people anymore. And it's a huge deal. Paul's thinking, I got this great church going here. And Peter, like the leader of the church, the guy that hung out with Jesus, is screwing the whole thing up. And so it's it's a huge deal. And part of what stuck out to me about this passage a few months ago is how intense these relationships are. And the Bible is intensely relational. And we can read it like this is, you know, a book that's a couple thousand years old. But, man, it's, it's just alive and these relationships are alive and a couple weeks ago jesus and peter denies even knowing his best friend and then the rooster crows and jesus turns and looks at him that's an intense relational moment peter goes out and he weeps bitterly when when jesus tells john this is your mother and this is your son like they took that seriously and jesus mother went with john to ephesus that's how this like what we have from early church history because they took that seriously in the old testament joseph and his brother They sell him into slavery and he ends up going down to Egypt and they think he's dead. And some 20 years later, they realize that he's still alive and they're at his mercy. And they're like, we have totally screwed this up and we're in so much trouble. And Joseph's like, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and just goes out and weeps. And it is an intense emotional scene in this passage. Um, You know, it says even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas and Paul are best friends for a period of time, you know, and Barnabas is is getting dragged away by this stuff that's going on. And Paul is um, or Peter. Paul is amazed by it. And it, it affects everything about his ministry. So he says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to, to Cephas, to Peter, before all of them, if you, though a Jew, Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? He's basically saying, stop being such a hypocrite. And so there's, there's real conflict in this passage. So I'm going to talk for a few minutes. And, and draw some principles out of here about conflict. And I'm going to talk about how you approach conflict, why you approach conflict, and what you hope to get out of conflict. And so I'll start with that. What, how you approach conflict matters a whole lot. Now everybody's texting me and I don't have time to look at it. Oh, I'm going to need a break in the middle of this. And so be direct, be honest, and be generous in your approach to a conflict. Be direct, be honest, and be generous. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I didn't talk about him behind his back. You know, I didn't even write him a sternly worded letter, although at some points that's probably appropriate to do. Um, but I opposed him to his face. I was direct in the confrontation later in that passage. It says, I said to Cephas before them all, honestly, like I would recommend not doing that. I'm not sure what to do with that because you know, there's a, there's a, a saying about criticizing in private and praising in public. And here he seems to do the opposite, but at times uh, sometimes it needs to go public and, and he decides to do that here. You read through the new Testament and you get the idea that Paul does not shy away from conflict. I think most of us shy away from conflict. I shy away from conflict. Um, 
uh, and that part of that's my personality. Part of it's my background. Uh, my my parents split up when I was younger, and so there was conflict, and then and then there was separation. And it's hard for me to see how conflict leads to good things. And it, all of us have you know some story in a fallen world. We're gonna have to deal with conflict on a regular basis. The essence of the gospel, the essence of the gospel is conflict and reconciliation. We have rebelled against God and God through Jesus has made a way for us to be reconciled with him. That's what the cross and the tomb is about. It's about Jesus living the life that we were supposed to live, dying the death that we were supposed to die, and then proving to us that he has power, um, over sin and over death so that we can be reconciled to God. And so there's, it's, it's about reconciliation. And so we're going to have to experience conflict and reconciliation uh, as well. If you're not having some form of conflict with the people close to you, like something else is probably wrong. Uh, and so Peter is direct, or Paul, excuse me, is direct in his conflict uh, with Peter. I have a book um, that, that I use from time to time and read a few years ago called Peacemaking for Families. Uh, it's really good. All those peacemaking books are good. But he has language about peacemakers, but then he has peace breakers and peace fakers. So there's peacemakers, there's peace breakers, and there's peace fakers. And it's great language because you instantly know like what you are and where you fit in that. And if you don't, the people that you're watching with this this morning, they know. So I'm going to give you guys a few minutes just to talk about what you are, and we'll create some conflict that we can talk about, you know? Uh, no, I'm not going to give you a few minutes, but you can talk about that later. Here is a diagram from the book, so I think I'm going to disappear for a few minutes, and you're just going to have this diagram. But it's really helpful about where, where we fit on this peacemaker, peacebreaker, peacefaker. And they talk about peacemaking responses, attack responses, and escape responses. And how it is a slippery slope, and it's hard to stay in the place that you're supposed to, and it's easy to slide off on to either end. So as you're taking a look at that, I want to I comment on a few of their, the terms that they use. On the escape responses, denial, I think, makes sense for us. Flight can, flight can take a, a bunch of different you know, forms. And flight, I think, can be verbal. Flight can be emotional. It can be relational, or it can be physical. And so flight can be... You know, just refusing to talk about something. Flight can be leaving the room and going to another room. Flight can be ending a friendship, quitting a job, leaving a church, um, a divorce. All those can be forms of uh, flight. Now, on the other side of that, the attack responses, assault doesn't necessarily mean that you come to blows, but you can you can assault people verbally. You can assault them emotionally or relationally. So some mild forms of assault, harsh criticism, nagging. Just consistent nagging, uh, slander, angry words, consistent passive-aggressive behavior, threats. That can all fall under the, the, um, the term assault. And murder doesn't mean you actually, you know, Jesus talked about murder in terms of har like harboring anger with no, no desire to get over it. And you're basically murdered someone in your heart. And so this author talks about how you need, to, you need to take that into consideration when you're looking at these terms. And then when you get to the, that brown section where you want to be, uh, there are a few things in there I want to talk about. One, the, the line between overlooking something, between overlook and denial is, is probably a fairly thin line. And you've got to spend some time thinking about that. And so um, denial, I think, is is not really dealing with something and just kind of shoving it away, overlooking something. You can deal with something 
inside of you and, and overlook it. Uh, there is a, a, a pastor, author named Tim Keller in his book on marriage. I remember him talking about this a few years ago, how you need to rehearse the gospel in your marriage. And I would say in, in any of your close relationships on a regular basis, meaning you need to recognize that you're going to offend each other. You need to confess. You need to own up to things. Um, you need to offer forgiveness and to receive forgiveness. Uh, it, on a regular basis. Now, he said, you don't always need to do that, like verbally. You, you probably need to do that a couple times a day, even, but, but don't tell them that you're doing that. You know, you don't need to bring every single thing up. There's a verse in First Peter that says, love covers a multitude of sins, and it can overlook them and deal with them without making a big deal out of them. He said a couple times a week, you may have to verbalize that because someone's done something to you or you've done something to someone that, is, that has really wounded them or affected them. And a couple times a year, you may need to really sit down and hash something out or go talk to a counselor and deal with something. So overlooking um, fits into that Re- reconciliation. It, some of these terms and they're, they're better diagrams in the book actually, but I couldn't find it on the internet is really discussion. Um, mediation could be compromise where you, you're really working through some things and arbitration may be counseling, uh, where you go and sit down with, and, and get some help with somebody. There's another diagram and, um, Daniel can flip to that, which is a little bit easier to understand, uh, where oh, work it out, overlook, something, talk it out, get help, you know, a little bit more basic attack or put downs and gossip and then fighting with somebody and escape would be denying um, that it's there, blaming somebody or running away. And that's probably the realm that, that we live in more often. Um, hopefully that makes sense to you. Let me give you a few, a few passages uh, along with the, the main text for today that I think help deal with how you, how you stay on top of that slippery, slippery slope and balance this. So from Ephesians, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And I mean, I think that's really important about what you're after and the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, but with humility and gentleness, how you approach conflict matters. And when you approach conflict with humility and gentleness, that makes a huge difference in approaching conflict. From 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and love is kind. That is about how you approach conflict. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant and it's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. You know, there's a lot in there for how we deal with our conflicts. Love does not need to. The first time it's slightly offended, let everybody know about it. That's not what this is about. You know, love covers a multitude of sins. It's not arrogant and rude, which in that, in that trying to stay on that slope that matters a lot. It's not irritable or resentful. But a lot of times when, you, when you're on that overlook or deny, by the time you decide to bring something up, you know, and this may be right that you've waited a while, you are irritable or resentful. So you have to take a step back, you know, and check yourself as you approach conflict and make sure that you're approaching it the right way. And love doesn't quit easily. One more passage to inject into this Ephesians 4 
Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so that's speaking the truth in love. Um, Jesus was full of truth and full of grace. And that's what we have to seek uh, to be when we approach conflict. But you speak truth out of love, and that is going to lead to maturity. And there is a maturity in our relationships that doesn't happen apart from speaking truth in love because we live in a fallen world and we're broken, sinful people. And, and, and thankfully, we have the gospel to approach those situations. So how you approach conflict uh, really matters, and the gospel equips us uh, to approach it well. Why you engage conflict matters a whole lot. And so Paul, his complaint against Peter was based in his theology, not his personal preference. His, his complaint was a theological complaint. Now, let me explain this because I, I don't think that sounds quite the way that I wanted to. So when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But after those men came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And then everybody went along with him, even Barnabas. Um, I'll say this because he stood condemned. Generally, telling people that they stand condemned is not a great approach to conflict, okay? Don't, after we get done with the sermon today... Um, say, you stand condemned. Don't do that. That's probably not going to go well for you. Uh, but his problem, the, the problem that Paul had distilled this down to was a, was a spiritual problem. Uh, Peter was treating the Gentile believers wrong, wrongly. And Peter, of all people, Peter knew better. And by wrongly, Paul didn't mean um, you're, you're treating him in a way that I don't like. But you're treating them in a way that God doesn't like. And that's clear um, because of the way that God has spoken. Uh, and it's clear for Peter that the reason he was doing it was a gospel reason. He was afraid of the opinion of influential people from Jerusalem. And Peter was fearing for his reputation. And so Paul calls all that out and, and calls it hypocrisy and you know, pleads with him to stop. So he summarizes it this way. He says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that's when I acted. Paul's argument wasn't, I don't like this, or this is inconvenient for me, or this is bad for my ministry, and all of that may have been true. His argument was, you are not acting in a way that's consistent with the gospel. And furthermore, Peter, of all people, you should know that. Uh, and so why you are going into a conflict matters. And, and it's some work to figure out what it is that you're really upset about. And I, I'm not sure we are ever 100% sure of what it is we're really upset about. There's a story in Luke chapter 12 where a guy comes to Jesus and says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus is like, I ain't touching that with a 10-foot pole because he, like, wasn't, there was no, I mean, it was theological, but not what the guy was bringing to Jesus. The guy was just being greedy and wanted the money. Uh, if, if the guy had come to Jesus and said, hey, can you help me not be so greedy? I bet Jesus would have engaged the conversation. But the guy didn't realize uh, what he was after. James 
has a passage where he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and you don't ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. Um, and he challenges, what is it that we're really upset about and, and figuring that out? I think a lot of times what we're upset about, especially in an environment around our homes with people that we're with all the time or our workplaces, is our lack of control over a situation. You know, early in marriage, I don't think many of our arguments are theological or for us were theological. They were like, you are not doing things the way that things are supposed to be done, which is the way that I have always done things and they've always worked out. So why don't you just do what I want you to do? You know, that's not, that's not a great reason to have an argument. Go ahead and have the argument, you know, and it might not just be an early in marriage thing. It might be a late in marriage thing too. Uh, but the, the guy that wrote this book talks about the difference between a desire and a demand and says, be careful when your desires become demands. He says, when we see the object of our desire as being essential to our fulfillment and well-being, it moves from being a desire to being a demand. Like, I would like you to do this versus I need you to do this. The I wish becomes an I must have. And then he said that progresses from desire to demand. And if you don't give me what I demand, then I'm going to be the judge in the situation and I will punish you because you have not met my demand. And most of the time you do that and the other person has no idea that it's going on, uh, which creates another set of problems. This gets back to that verse about humility and gentleness. You know, this is the gospel that we are more sinful than we ever imagined and we're more loved than we ever dared hope. But, but we are broken, and we have sinned against God. And Jesus has reconciled us to him, and as he's making us into the people that God wants us to be and created us to be. But it means every time we approach conflict, we approach it with a bias. And we approach it um, more than a little bit messed up. And so there, a humility is required in our approach uh, where we got to back up and say, just because I'm upset about something doesn't mean it's something worth being upset about. You know, we have to be willing to spend some time with the Lord and, and ask him to reveal our hearts to us and to help us understand what it is that we're really upset about. It, you should have people close to you, especially for, you know, for conflicts that are deep-seated, that are coming back up right now, that you've been struggling with for a long time. You know, and it, especially if, if you're in a church, um, if you're in our church, we've tried in multiple ways over time to make sure that you're in relationship with people that you can go to and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Will you not just be on my side with this? Will you not just say something to make me feel better? But will you speak the truth and love to me and help me understand what's going on in my heart right now so that you can approach a conflict you know, with the right motive, understanding with clarity what is really wrong, and it's something that is worth being upset about. I think when Jesus talks about removing the plank from your own eye before you, you approach the, the speck in your brother's eye, this is the type of thing that he's talking about. And so understanding, you know, why you're, you're broaching a conflict really, really matters. And that doesn't mean you have to break out the Bible for every argument, but every argument does reveal what's going on in your heart. And every argument in some way is theological in that sense. It's based on what you perceive to be right and wrong, on what you think about God and yourself and, and others. 
And I'll say this, you're never going to be completely clear about, you know, what you're upset about. You know, you'll be more clear in some situations than others. And it doesn't mean you don't say anything until you're crystal clear, but approach that with humility. And sometimes you just need to go and say, hey, I'm this, you did this, or you said this, and this upset me. And I'm not even sure it's worth being upset about, but I need to let you know that I'm upset about it. And, and you can work that out together. And maybe you realize there's some things that you need to work out and some things that they need to work out. Um, and you can have some intimacy in that situation, even if you don't, you know, resolve, resolve the situation and, and in all those situations, we need to be prepared, um, that people, you know, the people that we're, we're having conflict with aren't always going to see it. Um, they're not always going to be ready to see it. They're not always going to be ready to deal with it. And so it may be that more patience is required in that situation. And, and a lot of these things that come up in times like this are situations that we've been dealing with for a long time. And so when it says that love is patient, like love wants to be more patient than we want to be. And God may grow our patience in this. And it, and it's still like, we still got to talk it out, you know, and intimacy can happen in there. Even if the reconciliation that we're after doesn't happen right, right then, you know, uh, because sin always creates some separation in our relationships and it's not going to be, um, everything that we want it to be. And until we find a, a way to come to resolution about whatever the issue is that's come up. So why you, why you approach conflict matters and what you hope to gain in conflict matters, uh, as well. And so I'll say this and just it's where the passage goes after this, that Paul's identity was in Christ and Paul's identity was not in the resolution of the conflict. Uh, reconciliation and winning an argument are two fundamentally different goals when approaching conflict. Um, he goes on after this to talk about the dispute between the, the Jews and the Gentiles and how it, you can read the passage after this in Galatians, but about how the, the Jews you know, had the law and were justified by the law and the Gentile sinners didn't have the law, but now it doesn't matter because our righteousness comes by faith in Christ. And, and really he he lays out this problem is really about Peter's identity being found in the approval of the guys from Jerusalem and not in Christ. And that changed the way that Peter changed the people around him. He lost source. He lost sight of the source of his righteousness what really made him good and made him loved. And he sought after the opinion of those men instead of God. And so Paul's goal was to change his behavior, but really Paul's goal was to restore Peter and to help him to remember what the gospel was and how much the gospel meant and why the gospel mattered so much. And he knew that was the thing that would change Peter's behavior. And that the most important thing about Peter was that Jesus loved him. So Paul, a few verses later says for, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so that is a way of saying in, in the wake of this conflict, this is not about me. It's about Christ. Like it's all about Christ. Um, this is from Corinthians. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. You know, you ask yourself approaching the conflict, what would I rejoice more in? 
What I rejoice that it just goes away, you know, peace faker. What I rejoice that I'm the one that wins the argument, which is a peace breaking move. Or what I rejoice in a more mature relationship, which is peace making. Uh, what you would rejoice the most in, honestly, will tell you a bit about your security in Christ and, and may reveal an area where you have to grow. And this from Ephesians, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of, of peace. Uh, is that what you're hoping to accomplish when you approach a conflict? And are you open to the fact that God may reveal something that you didn't know or it may take longer than you hoped and submit that to the Lord? So how you approach conflict, why you approach conflict, what you're hoping to get out of a conflict. My hope um, this morning, my hope throughout this, this week as I've been praying through and thinking through and working on this message is having had conversations with people and knowing they're a lot more that are just dealing with stuff that they didn't really want to deal with and don't feel equipped to deal with right now, that, that God would speak to you in some way, you know, maybe not every way, but in some way he would reveal to you you know, either how you're approaching conflict is too soft or it's too hard. And so that needs to be adjusted or that you're not clear on why, or you are clear on why, and it's the wrong why for the approach to conflict, or that you're not sure what you hope to get out of it, or you hope to get the wrong thing. And that God would speak to you about those things and move you forward with them. The gospel, as I've said a few times, has everything to do with conflict and reconciliation. And in multiple verses in the new Testament, um, it were spoken to about how God has reconciled us to himself and now it's possible for us to be reconciled to each other. And that is one of the things that, that brings the Lord the most glory is when our relationships experience reconciliation, where we're really be able to deal with, with the ways that we've hurt each other. Um, we're really able to deal with, with deep sin in our lives and in such a way that we, for, we forgive each other as he has forgiven us because we have the gospel because we have the gospel. And so my prayer for us is that God would move us forward in that. And if you need help doing that, and maybe now's the time when you need help, there are counselors out there that are they're ready to meet with you, probably over the internet, but they're ready to meet with you. And, and we've got some budget as a church that we set aside to help people. And so finances are a problem. Please let us know. But contact me and, and let's get you in a place um, where we can help you work through some of these issues. Father, thank you for this passage. I am, I'm so thankful that the Bible is so real, uh, that this conflict was not something in black and white and pen and paper. This was flesh and blood. God, these were real relationships. And um, they were, there were relationships that experienced conflict that we would relate to. And there were relationships that survived that conflict, Lord. Um, and their, their relationships that provide a, a model for us of what is and what can be, God. So my prayer this morning is that you would speak to our hearts, um, that you'd convict us in specific places, that you would help us not to settle for relationships that are not reconciled in the way that they need to be, um, and that you would give us whatever the next step is that we need to take and the courage to take that. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.